Welcome. This is the Spencer Sherman podcast, and I am so excited that you joined us. I'm excited because my mission is to help each of us wake up around money. It's to break the money taboo. Money has been so closeted for so long. My mission is to bring money into the light and to start recognizing the autopilot beliefs that we have, the autopilot thinking, the autopilot behavior that we have with our finances, whether it's the way we spend, save, invest, give, or talk about money. My mission is to help us transform our habitual patterns with our money and our finances. This podcast is for educational purposes and is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice. While I'm a registered financial advisor with Abacus Wealth Partners, any personal opinion or anything I share in this podcast does not reflect the opinion or position of Abacus Wealth Partners. I am so excited to be here and dive into this topic. It's been a very scary topic for me my whole life, and that's why I feel the need to break this money taboo. There's such potential, and I am so excited today because my dearest friend and colleague and partner, co-founder Brent Castle is here with us, and I'm just delighted to have you here, Brent. It's wonderful that you're joining us. Thanks, Spencer. I'm thrilled you're doing this work and this podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, Brent, we'll get right to it. You're the CEO of Abacus Wealth Partners. It's this financial services company. And whenever someone hears that word finance, I notice with myself even finance, I want more. And all the ads from financial companies, they're always about making more money. And I don't ever see the word that I consider the dirtiest word in the English language. I never see the word enough. I always say that's the word that none of us can really say, especially in the financial industry. And yet you've been talking about enough as well, just as I've been talking about it. And I'm curious about, as this CEO of this major financial services company that has well over $4 billion under management, how did you come to land on this project you call the Enough Project. Tell us a little bit. Thanks, Ben, for your interest in that. So the Enough Project kind of dawned on me during a meditation retreat, I think almost three years ago now, where I was just reflecting on how my lifestyle expenses had gone up since my 20s. I grew up you know, to a single mom and middle class, went through public schools. I was a uh, first generation immigrant. I was born in South Africa and moved here when I was 10. And then realizing that my income had gone up a lot. My wealth had gone up a lot. We lived in a nicer house. We took nicer vacations. And in all likelihood, income and wealth were going to keep going up. But mm. I just, I was so content. I had such a strong sense of enough while being on this meditation retreat where we're basically eating, you know, very simple foods and Spartan not looking, rooms, right? Very Spartan rooms, not looking at cell phones, not, you know, just all the usual entertainments were around and mm -hmm. you know, couldn't, couldn't order a cocktail by the pool, none of that. And I was really content. And, and oh. so I had this strong hit of like, I, I kind of want to cap our lifestyle where it is and even have it diminish over time as, you know, as our boys go through school and we don't have to pay that expense anymore and talk to my wife about it after the retreat. And she was actually relieved. She was like, I'm so happy to hear you thinking this way. Cause I've wanted this as well. And yeah, so I started 
spend journaling about it. And I just titled the word doc, the enough project and started writing about both this inclination to want to cap things, but also all the voices that came up that said, well, but wait, what if the market crashes? What if you lose your company? What if, you know, you have a grandkid with special needs, like you might not have enough. And so I just wrote about, you know, all these different voices from all perspectives. Yeah, when you bring up that that sense of anything could happen, like there could be a 1929 crash, there could be two 1929 crash. Somebody once said to me, I may need millions of dollars for organs that I might have to purchase. I mean, it seems like you can always come up with justifications for going for more and more and more. And yet what I found is that pursuit of more puts us in that that mode of grasping, it puts our bodies and our minds in a more stressful posture. And we generate actually fear when we're in that place of wanting more and more. I think it's so beautiful that you landed on this idea that I actually feel content at this meditation retreat. I have enough and I can go for this idea of enough. What would you say to people, wealthy people, middle-class people, and then there's the people that literally don't have enough. What would you say to these different groups of people about this idea that enough could actually bring us some contentment and freedom? What I would say to the people that you're talking about is the same thing I said to myself, which is what's the nature of the satisfaction I get when I get more? Mm. So just like every human being, I crave more and then I often can get more, whether it's just another scoop of ice cream or let's not stay in the three-star hotel, let's stay in the four-star hotel. And as I've kind of audited, for lack of a better word, how these things have actually gone, I've usually found, if I'm really honest with myself, the first time I have a new experience, I go to a, a really nice restaurant for the first time. It's pretty amazing. Like that feeling of pleasure, mm. you know, and of new pleasure is really great and, and kind of addictive. Like I often find myself thinking, ah, I want to come back here again, or I want to do this. I want to stay at this hotel again, but with these people next time, or there's this tendency of the mind to want to repeat or up, up level. But if I'm really honest doing that audit, the second and third and fourth time is, is huge diminishing returns. And mm-hmm. so what I've found is that, that what the mind advertises as more is actually quite rarely an experience of better or more. Uh, there might be more stuff is what I hear you say, but it's not actually more contentment. It's right. actually like less contentment, but more stuff. Yeah. It could be yeah. stuff. It could be an experience. Like I know there's a lot of people in our industry who say, yeah, don't spend your money on stuff, spend it on experiences. But even that, like I love traveling. I love, yeah. you know, but even that you can feel a diminishment over yeah. time with those experiences and this, and again, this posture, when you're going for more, my experience is it it puts you in a more stressful state of being because yeah. you're in that wanting place instead of that contentment place. You're leaning forward instead of standing up straight. Now, what would you say, Brent, to the people who say to you, but Brent, anything could happen. You don't know. You're always telling me you don't know about the future. We could have two 1929s. I could need money for an organ transplant or something. Who knows what will happen to a family member? How do I get to enough when something bad could happen? It's a great question. And I asked the same question of a a PhD in math that I was talking to maybe six months ago about this. And he said, 
when you're doing your kind of worst case scenario projections, mm -hmm. don't use the black swan, we call it, you know, the sort of one in a million worst case. He mm -hmm. said, think about the most realistic and probable worst case. So mm -hmm. if we're thinking about the stock market, don't think about the Great Depression, you know, which was an 83% loss, I think, from the top to the bottom. Think about 2008, which is a more realistic kind of decline. And so what my wife, Britta, and I have agreed to do is to, is to build our plan around that, around kind of a realistic worst case. And then if it's worse than that, we're willing to downscale our lifestyle substantially, like even more than the kind of basic consumption would have us do. And because in that world, there's so much more suffering than we would be having. Tell us more about the disadvantage of imagining those, those black swan or really worst case scenarios. Uh, tell us more about that. Why is that such a, why is that, I don't know, a dangerous path? Why is that not a fruitful path? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think the best universal answer is it deprives you of quality of life right now. Oh, whatever love that, that be. I love that, Frank. Can you say that? I love that. Yeah. Give, give us an example of that. Give us, give us something about that. So if you focus on your worst case scenario, first of all, there's always something worse. So there's no such thing as an infinitely worst case scenario. I can always mm. come up with worse. And mm. so in that part of the mind, the fearful part of the mind, just like the hungry ghost part of the mind, like can never be satiated. The worst case can always be worse. So you could argue yourself into paralysis if you let that mind run amok. The that, reason I said yeah. it, it deprives you of quality of life right now is let's say quality of life would mean you help out your struggling child or sibling a little bit more, mm -hmm. or you do something pleasurable for yourself. Maybe you're someone who is very, very frugal, you know, to the point that you're depriving yourself of enjoyment or of, or some stresslessness in some part of your life. And by backing off of that worst case scenario to a realistic worst case, you'd let yourself take a little time off work and not work your fingers to the bone, or you'd let right. yourself donate to a philanthropy that can do a lot of good with your money. And if those things bring you quality of life right now, I think that's much more important than satisfying yeah. this primitive part of the brain that really isn't yeah. satisfiable. Yeah. Yeah. And then the more you describe it, Brent, like the worse it sounds, the idea of like, I'm going to imagine all the worst possible scenarios out there. Anything bad could happen. I mean, it just brings on more and more paranoia. For me, it gets my whole system goes into a much higher stress level, just thinking about all that. So that it can't, it can't be good for us to be focused on the absolute worst scenarios, as you're saying, to find some, the more realistic worst scenarios plan around that. And then I think what you're saying is there's an opportunity to find enough with that in mind, with those realistic worst case scenarios in, in mind. Yeah. So where could this lead to? I know, you know, one of the things you've been able to do is once you found that enough is that philanthropy or giving, whether it's to nonprofits or whether it's giving to friends and family members who are in need or political giving becomes much more viable when you find that enough point. So I'd love you to say something about how has it shifted your, your giving and how could we inspire others to start 
doing the same because I think it's easy to, well, not necessarily easy, but I think the first step in this is finding that enough point that how do you then let go? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. So for, for me and for Britta, there's a very keen sense of a lot of suffering in the world and a lot of future suffering that a lot of us talk about the, the catastrophe of climate change and things like that. And, and I don't worry about it for myself or my family or, but I worry about it for the people who live closest to the equator, the people who live in developing countries and the poor in, in America and in Europe and in the developed countries, because those are going to be the climate refugees. Those are going to be the people whose, you know, heating and air conditioning goes out. And if it's 115 degree summer day, they die. They don't have the money to go get a hotel room or to buy a standalone air conditioner from Home Depot. And if you go to Sub-Saharan Africa or you go to India or go to places like that, the crop failures are going to affect the poor. Right. So it sounds like you've really recognized the suffering that maybe all of us are not in touch with. And that's one of the things that's really motivated you. And when I hear you saying the more woke we become to some of this suffering in the world, maybe the more inspired some of us could be around doing uh, philanthropy with our money. Yeah. And the key word you said, Spence, is inspired. I think Mm. that's really, really the key word because philanthropy Mm. and even some of the stories I was just telling could be guilt-inducing. And mm. I think giving from guilt is very unsustainable. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't lead to that fulfillment, the quality of life that we talked about. But if you're inspired, if you go out and learn about the issues where money can do the most good or your time, if you want to volunteer time, that there are amazing ways to, when I say to myself and my family, hey, should we do this really nice vacation that costs us X thousand dollars? My sons will often turn around and say, well, how many under five-year-old kids could that help or save um, if we gave it to this organization or that organization? And obviously you could make that argument for every thousand dollars you spend because we live in the richest country in the richest time. So we don't go that far and it's a balance. And I did actually want to make this comment earlier when you were talking about this idea of more and enough is that it's important to also not apply that to our philanthropy. To not have mm-hmm. this sense of, oh, more philanthropy is better and I should yeah. maximize that. I think that's a similar trap. Yeah, that there's an enough with that point with that as well. Mm-hmm. All right, let me ask you my last question here. So there's a lot of money out there. There's $160 billion in donor advised funds. There's like a trillion dollars in private foundations. There's a lot of other monies on the sidelines. Let's get to that idea of inspiring people. I I hear from so many people, Brent, who are just like, I don't know what to do with my money. I don't trust nonprofits. I don't know how to vet them. Maybe I'll give $1,000 here, $1,000 there, but these people might have millions of dollars. Their dollars they're thinking about are very small or they just don't feel inspired. Mm -hmm. So what would you say from your experiences might be some ways to inspire people. So some of the money that's sitting in the donor advised funds and the private foundations not doing very much can actually be put into action because there's a lot of need in the world today, right? There is a lot of need. Yeah. So I, I don't know exactly how I would advise sort of the average person. What I can mm. share is what worked for me. 
once Britt and I did our revised financial plan based on this capping of our lifestyle, we found that there is in fact quite a surplus and we were able to actually increase the amount we were going to give to charity by about sixfold. So about six mm. times as much as we'd ever given before. Mm. And I'm not saying everyone should do that or that I want a big yeah. applause for that order of magnitude. I think it could be 10 or 20% more for some people, but whatever the right increase is that kind of puts you into this uncomfortable zone, which that certainly did for me. And I don't mean uncomfortable as in, I want you to feel bad. I mean, uncomfortable as in, I don't want to waste this money. I'm going to take the time and the energy to learn more so that I can be as sure as I possibly can that I'm using it effectively to do the most good possible. Mm. And that's what really inspired me. I've never had so much fun giving as I did last wow. year wow. when these numbers were that big. So anything you'd say to the multi-billionaires out there who are holding on to their money till death and not actually engaging their money in a proportional way to their wealth? I mean, if I was sitting with one in a quiet one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one place so they wouldn't feel yeah. shame in any kind of public way. Yeah. And if I was close enough, I would say, let's imagine we're both on our deathbeds and we're lying there looking back yeah. over our lives and we know we can't take it with us, even though it may benefit kids and grandkids. Like here it is. We, we have this lifetime of success and privilege mm -hmm. and good mm -hmm. luck and whatever else led to the, the wealth we now have. What am I feeling? What am I feeling about the wealth? And I think it would be really important to not like value judge the person and yeah. not sort of lead them. But really, what am I feeling? And maybe I'm feeling, yeah, it's great. I've made these billions mm -hmm. and I, I feel mm -hmm. great about all the value I created for the world and my family deserves it. And okay, that's what you feel. But mm -hmm. I think for a number of folks really letting in that death is certain and permanent can lead to a releasing mm -hmm. of that, the kind of grip that we have on, on high amounts of wealth. I, I love this brand. I love that this path to enough can actually benefit us in multiple ways that we can get to this place of contentment, that it can help us face our mortality and help us wake up to all this, this good work that we can do, all this fruit that our money can bear for us that it might not otherwise produce if we start to engage with it. And I love that you're such a great example of someone who's done that, that you've gotten inspired, you've seen what your money can do and you're doing it. So it's really powerful. All right. How do people get in touch with you if they want to learn, talk with you more, hear more about what you're up to? What, are, what do people do? That's sweet of you. So on the Enough Project stuff, I'm collaborating with a colleague who created a very simple website and that is enough-project.org. You can read a little bit there and express interest if you'd like to potentially go down this journey yourself. For me personally, the, the best place to kind of learn more about me or get in touch would be abacuswealth.com slash Brent, D-R-E-N-T. Perfect, Brent. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a powerful conversation and we've opened up something really big and we could have talked way longer, but this I think is going to give us all this inspiration, this way of, of thinking about enough and giving in some new ways. I so appreciate you, friend, brother, 
powerful person that you are. And so glad you joined us today. I want everyone to know that each of us is enough. Whether you have very little money or you're a billionaire, your self-worth is infinitely greater than your net worth. Remember that every time you make a money decision. Until next time, thank you so much for joining us today.